Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Bobby, what a year it has been here, just as humans existing on planet Earth, just doing the damn thing, living, surviving. Okay, Nick Castellanos getting all existential on me in the first 30 seconds of the pod. I'm into it. It is opening day today and, and forever. every day. That's a real throwback for people who have been listening for a long time. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been quite a year. 2020, am I right, bro? Crazy, bro. <laughs> um, and I think people are in need for some holiday cheer wouldn't you say yeah you know and and that's our that's how, how we see ourselves as as people cheer? people who bring holiday cheer i just call so. us call us saint saint nicks i think there are some people out there listening who might call us like saint wet blankets about certain topics it's it's possible but you know like we're kind of like funny wet blankets that's how i describe the show to people who have never listened before Funny wet blankets. I hope that's not extremely cynical, but laughing about it. Just true. Laughing through the tears, <laughs> you could say. Um, reflecting back on the fact that 2020 is ending and um, the fact that we put out 52 podcasts already, not including this one. So 53 podcasts, more than one podcast per week on average is it's really it's really messing me up. About a week ago when we were kind of coming up with these segments, I said to you, and I guess we should say like these segments being, we're about to do a year in review pod. If you've been around for a while, you're familiar with this concept. But I said to you, I feel like I have a pretty good grip on everything we did this year, you know, because like I, it's all, most of it has been in quarantine and like I haven't really been all that focused on everything else. And, you know, we got into a really good rhythm this year where we were just putting out a podcast every Monday where in years past, we were kind of just really busy moving around, putting out a podcast at least once per week. But sometimes it was Tuesday and sometimes it was Thursday and sometimes it was Saturday. And this year, you know, we had a cadence and a rhythm. And then I, I tried to look back on some of our episodes and I was like, we did that? We did that episode? When did we do that? <laughs> yeah. Remember when we did like five straight weeks where we just watched old baseball games and then talked about it no to to that point that was one of the things that i just forgot that we did it was like yeah. well who knows when the baseball season is going to come back and that's what that's one of the themes of 2020 who knows when x is going to happen mm-hmm. i don't know i feel like the the biggest descriptor for this year has been we're just working through it in real time and I think that applies to our podcast about as well as anything. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to be working through this uh, this year in review in real time as well. I haven't heard many of these clips in a very long time. Uh, and so I'm excited to listen back and dig up some some gems from the Tipping Pitches archive and and send us into 2021 uh, just, just, just barrels of hope and sincerity over here. You know, maybe we'll listen back and we'll we'll have a changed outlook on things. 
a little little more reflective around the holiday season. Uh, maybe 2021 tipping pitches is all about like positivity, man. Mm. You know, mm. that's what we're bringing. That's the energy we're bringing to the world. We're bringing to Rob Manfred. Keep it up, Rob. You're doing, you're doing great, bro. <laughs> you're killing it, bro. Uh, no days off. <laughs> Keep it 100, Rob. 365 pods next year, all praising Rob Manfred. Who's ready? <laughs> um, okay, we're going to get into some of the, our favorite segments of the year with some of our favorite guests of the year. All of that is coming up. Uh, but first, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Basley. And you are listening to The Tipping Pitches 2020 Year in Review. Uh, Alex, before we start playing some old clips and reminiscing and reflecting on how we can be more positive in 2020, I, we're acting like we're like such downers all the time. Like most of these clips are are kind of fun. Yes, <laughs> I went back and, and a lot of the clips are pretty fun. But before we do that, I think some thank yous are in order. Uh, 25 amazing people graced us with their presence on the podcast this year, and I'm going to give them all a quick shout out in reverse order. Clinton Yates, Sean Gibson, Colin McHugh, Rhea Butcher, Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman, Jess Skurade, Mark Normadin, Shakia Taylor, Jen Ramos, Jeremy Taché, Craig Goldstein, Fabian Ardaya, June Lee, Emma Ryan Yamazaki, Micah Johnson, Kyle Banduho, Sean Doolittle, Eric Silver, and Mike Schubert, Michael Bauman, and then in our preseason preview, Bradford William Davis, Hannah Kaiser, John McGee, Meg Rowley, on the gifts, all gift draft. The Cespedes BBQ guys again, Shakia again, and Hannah Kaiser again. That's a good list. That's a good list. And all of those people were ride or die for forever for appearing on the podcast in 2020. Absolutely. My my bar for being ride or die for you is uh, is very low, admittedly. Uh, you could like buy me a cup of coffee and I'll be forever indebted to you. Um, that said, all of these guests brought something so incredible to our conversations and and met us where we are in a year where meeting people where they are is like the thing that is being highly discouraged <laughs> by and large. Um, yeah, where we are is like this Zoom right now. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, no, we, we had really wonderful conversations with everyone. And, you know, we if you got... Uh, a spare 52 weeks on your hand, we encourage you to go back and listen to every single one because they were all bangers. Agreed. And to be earnest for a second, I want to say every one of those people who has come on our pod and the people who have come on our pod in the past, I truly am so thankful for because no, nobody needs to do it. Nobody has to come on this pod, but people choose to come on and engage with us and have such great conversations that both make us smarter, but also realize how much further we need to go because all of our guests are so incredibly talented and well-spoken and know so much about this sport that we love to hate and hate to love frequently. So those are all wonderful people. Go check them out. If you haven't already go check out their episodes in full. That's like basically 50% of our pods this year that people came on and helped us out. So Ernest, thank you. Shout out to those people. Uh, should we get started, Alex? Or do you have anything else to say about the year in 2020? No, but I'm I'm stoked for this trip down memory lane. Let's do it. I think the only thing I have to say before we get into it is that we talked a lot about Fernando Tatis this year. And now now we don't get to because it's the offseason and baseball decides that it just shuts the lights off during the offseason and nothing is allowed to be fun. 
You know what people don't do in the NBA? Stop talking about LeBron. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. The whole calendar year, you can never not have a conversation on Twitter about LeBron. There's always something going on. In baseball, it's like, ah, the conversation on Twitter today is about Bob Nightingale. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I also don't think that baseball needs its version of talking about LeBron 24-7. It's okay, guys. It's the holidays. Take a week off. Just take a deep breath. Spend <laughs> some NBA time with your family. Leave yesterday. your room. <laughs> Okay, let's get into our first segment. We are going to go in chronological order, starting with truly an iconic guest and someone who, if you told us at the beginning of this podcast that we would be just chatting it up with, shooting the shit about Star Wars with, um, I think we would have been like, haha, that's funny. This podcast will have been defunct for two years by that date. But all that being said, here is Sean Doolittle ranking his favorite Star Wars films. This is from January 14th in a little podcast called No War But Star Wars. I'm going to I'm going to start at the beginning. Okay. Um, and and also I think that these lists are at least for me it's subject to change and it's probably changed you know every year it probably changes whenever yeah. like a new Star Wars comes out or um and it kind of changes things and i try not to i try not to have recency bias or anything like that but and some of the movies have like sentimental value to me too right so um but i would start empire is my favorite um and then i would have the i, I have to have the last jedi um i really liked it and so good uh, i really liked it and and may, and rise of skywalker might have actually made me appreciate it more um and then, and then I have New Hope at, th- at three. I have Rogue, Rogue One at four. Um, and then I have, I'm doing this off the top of my head because I want it to be I organic. Oh, this is um, incredible. At, f- at five, um, I have Return of the Jedi. Um, at six, I would have Force Awakens. At seven, I would have, I would have solo. At eight, I would have Revenge of the Sith. At nine, I would have Rise of Skywalker. Ten would be, ten would for me. Ten would be Clones, and eleven would be Phantom Menace. Okay, we're all like nice. we, we have we have, I think we've created some tiers collectively. Yeah, we have. You know, we yeah. kept them all in the same tiers, with the exception of Alex putting Last Jedi at the very, very top. Uh, I think we we're all aligned <laughs> on our <laughs> tiers. Just roast me. <laughs> I, I respect it. No, I, I think it's totally valid. It's definitely my favorite of anything that um, that has been done with Star Wars since you know Disney bought Lucasfilm. Um, and I really liked, I really, really liked Rogue One. Yeah. Um, yeah, me too. But there's, there's, I, I liked, I, I, just, I really liked Luke's arc in, in, in The Last Jedi. And it was a little darker. It was a little different. It wasn't as predictable. I could have, I think the only thing for me that keeps it from being one, uh, the Canto Bite uh, adventure, it, it felt, it felt very prequels to me. Yeah. And, and, um, I, it was it was also like a, a really really long part of the movie, <laughs> but um, but I like the rapport that that Finn and Rose have, and 
I, we didn't get any of that in Rise of Skywalker, and I was yeah. I was really bummed by that. Yeah, much. I yeah. think much to all of our chagrins. Great hang, incredible guy. I hope he and Aaron are having a lovely off season. You know, and uh, and I'd love to see Sean do a little playing baseball next year. So. For the, all the, all for the, the Mets. For the Mets, yeah. Uh, all the execs listening to this, get your shit together. You got work to do. Can you imagine an executive, an MLB executive listening to this podcast? The level of offense that they would take as to how uninformed we are about how any of this shit works. <laughs> it's, it's making me cringe a little bit. Let's That's just... Re- yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, or, or, or they'd be like, yeah, those guys nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Baseball yeah, is completely you, you think so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Off the record. Um, next up, we uh, we finally made into a segment uh, the recurring bit that has existed on this pod for the entirety of its existence, which was, what if baseball was basketball or vice versa? And uh, instead of just bumbling our way through that conversation we brought on two people who actually talk about basketball uh for a living that is uh eric silver and mike schubert of the horse podcast we uh we sat down with them and talked about what should uh what should baseball steal from basketball what should basketball steal from baseball those guys brought such a wonderful energy and Listening back to this episode, I was in the studio with Mike and Eric and you were over the computer. We were in L.A. together and you were in New York still. And the idea of recording a podcast in person with someone is is uh, it's a glitch in my brain a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, this is from February 17th. It's called the Baseball Basketball Cultural Exchange. You just uh, want to do it in the order? Well, yeah, since we, since we already are talking about uniforms and yeah, stuff, I think the first thing that we would like to steal from baseball is uh, coaches wearing the uniforms like the players do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because with baseball, you've got the base coaches are wearing the exact same thing. Now they're being a little more lax with it in MLB, where the managers aren't always necessarily wearing the jersey. Like Aaron Boone is not always rocking a full, you know, Yankees pinstripe get up for the whole game. They should, they should, yeah. they should be. He needs to do to, like, to acknowledge how good the Yankees can are. Can you imagine Doc Rivers trying to argue a call <laughs> in full <laughs> clipper garb, shooting sleeve, headband, knee protective padding, and it's the white and the black, the white and the black one too. Yeah, like look, the coaches wear suits. Sure, whatever. The coaches wear the same thing. I love it. <laughs> are they wearing warm ups over it? No, they're wear- like they look like they could also hop on the court. <laughs> okay, so the other thing that I love about this is that everyone else has to wear a suit. So the dress code is still in force. <laughs> so the players who are not playing are wearing suits. The assistant coaches are wearing suits. No, the assistant the- coaches are also wearing the jerseys. Oh, I like I No, I want the coach to stand out. He could maybe wear something different, but like I think that's the fun thing with baseball is that the base coaches wear 
the the jersey and the bench coach oh, okay. and the pitching coach like they all have the jersey i want every single assistant coach on the bench like i want from pop to tim duncan to becky hammond like they're all wearing the same spurs tim Duncan's uniform. wearing the same jersey he was wearing. <laughs> i think can we pull something from hockey then and he has to put like the c for coach on his jersey that could be fun something i don't know any distinguish. hockey podcasts so i don't know if we can pull in a, a fifth and sixth person <laughs> <to this. laughs> i like if like there's the the c that's branded for coach like that's the only distinction we're going to steal icing. We want that. <laughs> We're going to steal the blue line? Is that a thing? Zambonis would be real good. Zambonis actually Zambonis. would be sick. I feel like you could give the assistant coaches a shooting shirt, you know, because the rest right. of the players <laughs> on the bench are wearing a shooting shirt. Also, frequently in baseball, like windbreakers are yeah, a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you rock a little windbreaker so that you're, you don't get cold in the shade of the dugout or Wait, whatever. But I don't want it to become football where people just wear like like I think it's the awful. Quarters. It can't be like sports. It's, it's not just, like sports apparel. You can't be sports apparel. It's literally the jersey. I just don't like that Bill Belichick can get away with wearing a ratty ass sweatshirt with the sleeves cut off. And it's like, yes, you showed up for work today wearing that. I think it should be strictly like baseball where you have to wear the uniform. Now, here's also the great thing. Let's say Doc Rivers argues a call. He gets thrown out. He goes in the tunnel, takes yeah. off his jersey yeah. halfway through. Yeah. And then so his assistant coach takes off his shooting shirt and becomes the coach. Yes. It's perfect. I think it would be great. Gives a nice cohesive look. And I love that baseball does this. It makes no sense at all. And that's why I think basketball should do it too. I like how the first thing you guys stole is like one of the dumbest things that baseball does. <laughs> You're going to love our list. Yeah, it was all, us. I, was, I was just thinking that like our things are like the way that basketball has like melded with like culture <laughs> and like the whole idea of the sport. And you're like, I want pop head to toe in a jersey. I will say one of my notes, I did write down general acceptance by older white America. So I, I did think of that. We're just not doing that one. Well, we want general acceptance from the rest of America. Yeah. So. <laughs> Shout out to Eric and Mike. Shout out to Horse. Shout out to the Multitude Podcast Network. Multitude Podcast Collective, of which I am a big fan. Alex, the very next week, we were joined for the first time on the podcast by Shakia Taylor uh, in an episode. This is February 24th. In wow, an is that true? I feel like yeah, we were she has been on so much that I'm just kind of like, no, Shakia has always been in our orbit. Yeah, well, we had been wanting to talk to her for a while before then, and then we finally... Um, you know, we finally got her on the podcast and this was for an episode titled You Don't Know Jackie, where uh, we went back and read a whole book or in yours, in my case, we read it for the first time because she, we had seen that Shakia was recommending that everybody go and read it. And so we talked about that book. We talked about a myriad of other things. We talked about how MLB uh, has sort of manipulated and rewritten the history of Jackie Robinson's lived experience as evidenced by this book, which is an oral history written by Cal Fussman. Um, Shakia is fantastic. And if you're not regularly reading Shakia, you're doing baseball media consumption wrong. Um, so go check all of her workouts. She has a great thread of all of her favorite stories this year. And um, without further ado, let's get into a little bit of our conversation with Shakia. So while reading the book, you know, like the book is sort of it's an oral history style of um, all of the players who came right after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Right. And 
I, I was sort of shocked, not shocked, I guess I should should know better, but just how resonant it feels with today, some of the things that were brought up. And one of those things specifically is like this idea of coded language. And, you know, we're sort of alluding to it now and how how managers and how someone like David Price, how Dusty Baker and how someone like David Price get talked about. But I couldn't help but notice that like a lot of the coded language, the foundation for it was laid back then and now it persists. And we're dealing with a sport that has this sort of, you know, generational trauma in it. You know, whether that be like they talked in the book about how Don Newcomb loses one game in the World Series and he's thought of as not clutch despite winning 27 games. And as someone who engages with some of these ideas in your writing, um, do you, do you see like any of that coded language shifting? And if not, how can it? Because it seems like we've sort of gotten to a point where um, it's just certain people in broadcast booths and on the internet using that language and the rest of us telling them that this is stupid that they're using that language and we haven't really systematically changed the way that we talk about players, players of color specifically. Oh, that's an interesting question. So I think one of the things that everyone needs to consider is the content, the things that happened in the book after Jackie, it really wasn't that long ago. Yeah, Like that is one of the main barriers to affecting any kind of change with regard to this is no, this wasn't that long ago. This was within the last 70 years. My grandmother is in her nineties. So she has pretty much seen this continuously for almost a century. And once people move past that, like, okay, this really wasn't that long ago civil rights movement, well, the main part that we talk about, it wasn't that long ago. None of this was that long ago. Our grandparents were, depending on, you know, where you're from and maybe what your grandparents believed at one point, were on one side of it or the other of this. It wasn't so long ago. And as far as language goes, oh my gosh, I am constantly talking about how the language that we use mm-hmm. to describe certain players is we don't we're not conscious of it we're not aware of it i was recently reading a chapter in a book um called when baseball isn't white straight or male and it was called Barry Bonds and the search for dap mm-hmm. and this writer talked about how um baseball writers the language they used to discuss him contributed to his image. It's not absolving him of being a terrible person or a rude person or extremely arrogant. It's just saying it didn't help. Right. And I think about it whenever I see the way players are described, even physically, people don't consciously think like I shouldn't, compare these players to animals in description but they do right like we think it's real cool to call people a beast because it's become casual but when you start referring to people as like he's such a stud like think about that language and where it originated and and maybe not maybe don't do it maybe don't say it um when we refer to players of color Um, with aggressive language, we're just adding to something that's been there for so long. And I think 
I don't think it's always intentional, right? Like, I don't think people are 100% conscious that what they're saying is coded language. But I do think we should all be a little more conscious of it. Just in the current state of, like, society right now, we're all supposed to be actively learning how to treat people better. Actively learning how to treat people as humans. And a big part of that is the language we use. Shakia, always putting things so much better than you and I could <laughs> ever, which is why we just keep bringing her back on here. <laughs> As the last time we talked to Shakia, we were like, you have carte blanche, open invite, invite yourself on as third co-host, whatever you want. Yes, yeah. Uh, next up, We'll fast forward a little bit uh, to May. Conveniently fast forwarding through all of those pods that we did going back and listening, going back and watching uh, old baseball games, which is kind of what everybody's content plan was through the beginning of the season when the baseball season was supposed to start and didn't. I, for one, think people would love to hear completely out of context our conversation about the seventh inning of the 91 World Series. Actually, now that I think about it, people probably would would like that it is it the off fun, season it was a fun time next up um we had a discussion you and i um about something that that had been bubbling up and we had had been kind of nibbling at the edges or, uh, around but had never really calcified into a real conversation and that was um how can baseball fans exert real influence over baseball teams over the teams to which they are wedded. Um, and we, we went so far as to ask the question, is it possible for fans to own a baseball team? And what is the, what is the precedence for this sort of thing? Um, what is the precedence for, for different models of ownership in baseball that shy away from the, the vulture capitalist model that tends to define the sport we know and love so well today. That's putting it kind of nicely, tends to define. <laughs> there are so many people out there right now who, who believe that baseball is working as well as it needs to. I just love my squad. I just love my squad. Open your third batter's eye. Uh yeah, I, I really I want to say really quickly before you officially introduce this uh, segment and before we get straight, get straight into it, um, 2020 was a, a really weird year for the labor conversation. Alex, I, I want to take an aside with you for a second because, you know, loosely since late 2017, we have been defining this podcast as like a sociocultural approach to baseball because that's something that you and I both studied in college and both have interest in and we lay our politics pretty out pretty openly on this show. And I feel like this year and the last half of 2019 was when we were really like, okay, this labor conversation is a serious thing that we could talk about week in and week out because the trickle down effect of what the owners are passing down onto baseball is kind of the reason that we don't like a lot of stuff going on in baseball right now. And whether that has to do with economics or finance or not, it comes from a place of the owners wanting to just monetize completely wholesale um, hoard the resource that is baseball. And we're going to talk about that a little later in another segment that we had with Rhea Butcher, which was wonderful. But what 2020 year in baseball labor 
what do you think about when you look back? Because I think a lot about us having to sort of analyze the existential conversation of our owners trying to literally kill the sport before our eyes. I, I think that this year it became clearer than ever where the, the line in the sand was drawn and what the intentions of baseball ownership groups actually were. Um, I think that we saw in the protracted negotiations over um, the 2020 season, we saw very clearly what the owners were actually interested in, and that was bottom line. And I mean, again, this is a business. We live in the old US of A. Like, they got a bottom line to look out for. That's that's how it is right now. Um, but that largely came uh, at the expense of player health and safety. And I, what better way to to make it clear to your fans where your interests lie than try and force through a baseball season in the middle of a pandemic? So. Um, we learned some things about each other this year. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we'll continue talking about labor in 2021. No indication yet. Not sure. Yeah. I am kind of moving away from it, honestly. Um, yeah, I just don't really, I just don't really care anymore. I don't think my politics just don't it. filter through the lens of, of worker rights anymore. R- right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now that you're getting that Spotify check, you're like, <laughs> <laughs> All that being said, Alex, let's go to the clip before you get me in trouble. Yes, this is from May 11th. It's uh, from the episode, Could Fans Own a Team? That being said, we should talk about a third option, which is popular in American lefty discourse, and that is public municipal ownership of the teams. So the teams would be owned by the states or cities that they reside in. Alex, what are your first thoughts about this? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on board. <laughs> um, I, these are all ideas that have been kind of flirted with, um, even, in, even in baseball. Um, so in 1984, when Ray Kroc, who was then the owner of the San Diego Padres, also owner of... Um, something called McDonald's, whatever that is. Uh, When he died, his widow Joan tried to actually give the Padres to the city as a public trust. And MLB was amazing move by Joan shouts out to Joan Kroc. Uh, MLB said, fuck no, that's not happening uh, because you know, that's prophets out the door for us. Um, But these are ideas that like, have floated uh, around the discourse before. Um, to bring it back to the the Packers for a second, um, Dave Zirin, um, who is a sports columnist and noted just lefty podcaster, uh, famous person, just just yeah, you you, you know the guy. <laughs> um, back in 2011, he wrote about the Packers. Um, in the New Yorker, and he said, quote, the public is already shouldering a great deal of the cost and debt for NFL franchises, but these public dollars, through some sort of magic alchemy, morph into private profits that often flow away from the communities that ponied up the dough. In the United States, we socialize the debt of sports and privatize the profits, which I read that and it just kind of blew my mind because that way of thinking about 
who is investing the money into these teams versus who is reaping the, the benefits of it is like, it's like night and day. And so this idea that cities could step in and essentially buy a team through bonds or raise taxes or whatever, and then the profits from that just are forced to, you know, I mean, you just make it like like any other government entity, right? Like the profits that are generated just go back into making that organization better. Yeah, this is the one to me. <laughs> like, like, so I think we can start to sort of blend the end of this conversation in because um, I wanted to close by talking about what are some of the unintended consequences of taking ownership away from individuals and spreading it out to a lot of other people. So I, I think you and I would agree that, that there's if there's like a sliding scale here, we're already on the worst end of it because single billionaires owning things are clearly not in the interest of the many other people who should have interest in these sports teams. But I think that having fans own part of the team with all the history of baseball players and the baseball labor unit, the players association, the union being sort of villainized for wanting more for themselves. I feel like it kind of sets up an interesting power dynamic between like the, the fans who now actually own the team and the players who are asking for more from the team. And so it's like, I don't want to create a world where fans are like, I want to screw over the players as much as possible so that the organization can make more money and then reinvest it. I feel like you're maybe setting up a dangerous precedent if you let these fans who might have, um, as you know, baseball fandom is a more conservative subsect of the American population than listeners of Tipping Pitches. I feel like you are maybe setting it up where um, now the new shareholders of the team are like all right let's pull one over i now agree with rob manfred (laughs) wouldn't that be nice alex wouldn't 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 fans owning a team be nice yes yes it would i think that might be our stated goal based on the fact that it's in our podcast description and twitter bio let's move on you know actually real quick i just want to say we asked this question in May, and mere months later, one Steve Cohen owns the Mets. So I think we have our answer that yes, a fan can own a team. Could fan own a team? Yes, <laughs> only if they have fourteen could, billion could dollars one, from could one from billionaire fan own team. <laughs> well, we we got our answer, and it is a definitive, resounding yes. Uh, okay, let's move two weeks ahead into the future. That is also the past. Uh, to an episode titled Traditions, What Are They Good For? Alex, this is a favorite segment of mine from the year, mainly because it was putting you on showcase and going on your Wikipedia deep dives. Uh, This was you assembling a list of all of the best and weirdest and most obvious, but like don't make sense, baseball traditions, and me just giving a thumbs up or thumbs down to whether I wanted to keep them and whether I like them or not. So... No more explanation necessary. Let's go to this. Traditions, what are they good for? May 26th. I like how like we're like the czar. We're right. the czar of baseball fandom. And we're if deciding. we say that we're say that it's thumbs down, nobody's allowed to do it ever again. You stay, you national anthem. <laughs> Be gone. <laughs> um, all right, next one. Throw in the ball around the horn. After a strikeout. Hard thumbs up. Just, I'm just going to tip my pitches right here. <laughs> Hard thumbs up, dude. 
Throwing a ball around the horn is sick. <laughs> anyway, keep going. I I mean, that's it. After strikeouts, the infielders just kind of want to play a little play a little game of catch real quick. Do you have the history for this? To- I'm curious if there is a documented history for this because it's one of those things where someone probably just did it one time and everyone was like, that was fun. Let's do that thing again. It it appears that throwing the ball around the horn um, was another thing that originated in like the the late 1800s as as just a bit of showmanship, as just a bit of something fun to do to do for the fans. It actually um, there were players who would do this prior to the game and just kind of would like throw the ball around and have fun with it and show off for the fans a little bit. And it slowly kind of evolved into into something that you just did after a particularly good play. You know, you're just like showing off the fans a little bit. You're like, yeah, I fucking turned that double play. Now watch me throw it over to second base again. again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you like that one? <laughs> Wait till you see this one. <laughs> yeah, and doing it for the fans is cool. I mean, I don't think fans think it's particularly impressive anymore with how far baseball has come. It might have been impressive in the 1850s when no one had a glove. It was like, oh, you can complete a throw and catch. Um, now it's kind of evolved to the point where it's it's exciting for the pitcher. You know, if you get a strikeout and the catcher guns it down to third base and they get it around, and that's pretty cool. That's a that's an exhilarating feeling. As as speaking as a former pitcher myself, Alex, <laughs> there's nothing got professional experience. There's nothing more here. exciting than your high school teammates. You get a strikeout and your high school teammates yell, get it around, and then they throw it around. That's that's, that's Yeah, exactly. And you can just kind of stalk around the mound for a little bit, right? Gives you a gives you a bit of breather. And I think that like again, it's baseball players just kind of are a little antsy and they wanted to like get a little more involved. And so they're just like, hey, throw it to me. I haven't gotten the ball in three innings. Maybe just like I want to remember what it feels like. Last last thing I'll say on around the horn, though it is definitively a thumbs up. It's not fully up. It's three quarters up because. Oh, wow. Because when I said it, it was a hard thumbs up. So it's a hard that you're uh, walking that back. It's a hard thumbs up. The idea of it, but I want it to be executed better. I want more okay. variations on get it around. Like I want the catcher to throw it to the left fielder. Let's get crazy with it. Each yeah. team has their own permutation of get it around. <laughs> that I, I like that. I like that. We throw it to the bat boy in left field. The bat boy tosses it up, hits a soft toss to the right fielder. I don't know. Get crazy yeah. with it. Harlem <laughs> Globetrotters this shit. Yeah. Like p- play a little game of pepper in between strikeouts. Pepper. Oh, hell yeah. I hate pepper. <laughs> so yeah, bad. It's at dumb. It. <laughs> um, before we move on from this, this is just a tidbit that I wanted to bring up about the name around the horn. Um, because, I mean, when you think about it, it, it doesn't make sense. What does that mean? It has nothing to do with throwing the ball around a baseball diamond. But according to MLB uh, official historian John Thorne, this is from an article in the Washington Times a few years back, um, the term itself actually is historically significant as well. Um, when baseball was becoming popular um, shortly after the California gold rush, in the you know mid 1800s um players would and their family members would head west right they were heading west to um play baseball out there but 
to manifest destiny on the pod today. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, but apparently the return trip was very treacherous uh, at the time, the return trip back across the country. So they would instead leave San Francisco and sail around Cape Horn at the southernmost tip of South America to either New York or Boston. So that they was were going, safer? They were going physically around the horn. Yeah, does not seem safer at all. Jesus, let's make the trip four times longer and it's on water. Personally, I'm out on all sea travel. That's just yeah. a me thing. Absolutely. Shout out to the 49ers, but <laughs> coming all the way back <laughs> around the horn, but personally not for me, dog. Um, Around the horn, by the way, before we move on, around the horn. Really sad that that ESPN TV show took that name. Would have been a great name for a podcast. Uh, yes, absolutely. Everything it is, good it's has an been objectively done before. Good name. Yes. <laughs> Except tipping pitches. Very original, very iconic, very important, very large, very successful podcast. I think there should be like a yearly baseball conference where fans, players, owners, whoever wants to come, just get together. And you just like get rid of one baseball tradition. You vote. You say, okay, uh, no more throwing the ball around the horn. You just what? can't can't do that anymore. No, that, that's a big thumbs up for me. It's it like a, a loser. It's like loser leaves both. town, or like or like if you vote someone out of your fantasy league or like Survivor style, you vote someone out, and they have to go to like the Redemption Island, and they can come back the next year when someone else gets eliminated. I sure, yeah. I mean, you you took not a big the, Survivor the fantasy. Guy? I, I, I've never never watched Survivor. Oh wow, you have so much content to consume. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think I do. Twenty twenty, <laughs> the year of content consumption. Ignorance is bliss. Um, moving on now uh, to maybe the segment that uh, summed us up quite quite nicely in twenty twenty, and of course it uh, it featured the one and only Alex Rodriguez. Um, the, he, the main character of the pod, one of a few main characters of the pod, our pod is sort of a an ensemble cast of Alex Rodriguez of ourselves. <laughs> number one, first billing, uh, Alex Rodriguez, Rob Manfred, and a myriad of baseball owners who happen to be particularly vocal that week. Yes, absolutely, and Tatis, but, of course. But Alex is number one in our hearts. Always, always, and forever. Uh, and, and it in, turns out we're number one in his hearts. And it turns out we're number one in his hearts. Uh, Alex was kind enough to um, grace us with an entire video on his YouTube channel. That is youtube.com slash A-Rod. About shout out to the corp. What, shout out to the corp. <laughs> about what else but tipping pitches. And his favorite Podcast ways at gmail.com, in, in which... <laughs> Pitchers tip their pitches. I mean, this was teed up for us. This was right? a it fucking it, godsend. Manna yeah, from heaven, my friend. Down the middle. <laughs> this I, was late I, career Jamie Moyer. Yeah, literally. I feel like this needs uh, no more introduction. But this one was uh, this was weird. This was fun. This was uh, this was the zone lives in the moment. Uh, July sixth. Are you ready to rock? I want to talk about uh, three players that I learned a great deal from. One, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, my teammate in Seattle. Deep to left field. Oh, baby. Put it 
The other one is Derek Jeter, I Hall knew of Famer, it was my teammate with the Yankees. Jeter hits it into right. Back at the wall. Game over. Yankees win and the series is tied. And another Hall of Famer in Chipper Jones, who I played in 2008 for the U.S. Olympic team when we represented uh, the USA. These three guys had one thing in common, and I'm, I'm really, really sure that it helped them in their trajectory to having this Hall of Fame careers. Uh, all three of them, during the game, they watched the game for nine innings. Now, they may That's sleep it? in there to the That's video all it takes to become a Hall of Famer. They, Just they to watch the game. That was the one thing they all had in common. That was the only thing. If you wanted to talk to Chipper Jones, you talked to him before the game, or after the game, but for those nine innings, he sat in the corner and he watched that pitcher looking for anything that can help him. And for you youngsters out there, when you go into the video room, you know what you're thinking about? The past. And you're thinking about the future. What you're not thinking about is the moment. And the present is a gift. That's why it's called the present. Now, when, <laughs> when you're- did he, just pitcher, did he just come up with that? To look for? I'm gonna give you that was a Kanye minutes. lyric, but- <laughs> One of the things that I really love about his videos is that it'd be like three ways that tip pitchers tip pitches, but then he'll also give like sub lists of like any number, you know, like he just gave four things that yeah. you should do. I, like it wasn't even, he just speaks in lists. Yeah, it was, it, the list was one, the past, two, the future, three, the moment, four, the present is a gift. Just like <laughs> Total's dream of consciousness, like one. B, that three, tip pitches all the time, but the only way you can pick up on these signals is if you're paying attention. If you're still stuck in your last at bat, studying and watching and in your head, then you're not going to be able to prepare for what's coming next. So let me show you three ways that pitchers tip pitches as a hitter. These are the three things I will see. Look he's for. having a hard time saying it too, I'm just like us. <laughs> I'm going to show you something with the hands and the tempo. That's also and the last, glove. last, I'm gonna show the you- The glove is on the hands. With the ball. Let's start with the glove. The ball's so in the, the hands. Glove, hit, <laughs> and you see a pitcher squeeze. See, that was another list. You see this squeeze. A lot of times that would be a fastball. Just a lot of times. Not all the time, <laughs> just a lot of times. <laughs> okay. Now, if you see the glove open like that, open like that, that sometimes is sometimes. a change up sometimes as a hitter you're able to pick that up that's one way mm -hmm. when they're from the stretch what you find a lot of pitchers do is they're looking at you and when they're throwing a fastball they're a lot more deliberate why because they're loading up and they need that power what a lot of pitchers do when it comes to throwing a breaking ball meaning a curveball a slider or a change up they'll speed up are these rules universal? You can see like, a <laughs> fastball, there'll be a lot slower. He's using a lot of qualifying phrases like a lot of times. Yes. You know, sometimes yeah. pitchers will open their gloves wider for a changeup. Like, can I just go up to the plate and just bank on that, A-Rod? Like, or am I just gonna get blown away with a fastball if I think that his pitcher's glove is wider than usual, which I don't know what usual <laughs> is. <laughs> What I'm really interested in is, uh, are we going to get more of uh, Griffey and Jeter and Jones in this video? Because he listed the three of them up top and was like, I'm going to teach you 
what I learned from these three guys. And I thought those were going to be the three ways in this video. Yeah, like one but thing like, from each guy. But so yeah. far, we've only heard from A-Rod. Like, he just <laughs> named the three players he played with. Once again, A-Rod, lover of lists right and name drops. And they're trying to speed you up to go soft and keep you off balance. Jen, you like this one. This is the difference <laughs> when you're able to see the white ball. Now, hold on. Jen, what? you'll like this one. Is she there? Is she holding the camera? Is she filming? Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> She's not holding the camera. No way. There's no way. This no. video has to have cost over $10,000 to produce. <laughs> Absolutely. I love his outfits, by the way. It's very simple businessman. I'm not being sarcastic here. I actually, I would dress like that. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's total corporate, like, cool CEO, you know, yeah. like feet up on the desk. Like, yeah, you can come talk to me about anything as long as it's not about unionizing. 50-50 <laughs> rev split Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> uh, this looks like how you and I dressed when we went to career fairs because, like, we didn't want to put on tie. Yeah, exactly. We were like, oh, we're going to be cool. They're going to, and they're going to notice that we're yeah. cool. Like, we don't care a little Deadspin's bit. Deadspin's going to offer me edgy. a column today <laughs> on the eighth floor of the Arthur L. Carter School for Journalism. Because I'm wearing a sweater over a shirt and no tie and black jeans. Now. <laughs> Okay, Alex, I mentioned thank you. Thank you to Alex Rodriguez, obviously. Thank you always to Alex Rodriguez. Just keep doing you, big dog. Keep putting out YouTube videos. Keep enjoying the pod. We really appreciate it. I mentioned that Fernando Tatis Jr. was a definite main character of the pod. And and thank God for that. I honestly feel like Fernando Tatis Jr. was the best part about baseball in 2020. Major League Baseball in 2020. And I'm I'm very thankful for that, earnestly. This next segment, we were talking about Fernando Tatis Jr. We were talking about baseball jerseys and my inability to purchase with my own earned American dollars that I grabbed my bootstraps and pulled them up with to get. I wanted to give that to the San Diego Padres Corporation. I don't think that's what they're officially titled. but It's okay. I wanted to send that money via electronic wire to the city of San Diego their owners and the baseball subsidiaries. And I could not do it because they were not making more jerseys of Fernando Tatis Jr. And I was whining about that for approximately a month until they got jerseys back up. It's true. He was. This next, I, I was whin, whining about it on and offline. Alex yeah. can confirm. I was sending several text messages while also sending emails and tweets to the San Diego Padres. This next segment has basically nothing to do with that. We just got into an argument about whether jerseys or jerseys are better. So let's just go straight to that. This is Gone Fishing, and this was August 10th. I feel like they like don't start producing jerseys until guys have like a year of like time under their belt or something like that. But like why? that's why I I don't know. Okay, I know. Just buy I, just buy a fake one. Just buy a fake one, like the rest of us. No, no, no. I want a real jersey. I could buy the fake Fernando Tatis Jr. jersey on Poshmark that comes up every time I go to Google and search Fernando Tatis Jr. jersey, which I do like three times a day now because I fucking have to. It's it's not even... I I got news for you. People are still going to want Fernando Tatis Jr. jerseys in six months. So just leave the jersey up on the website like it, you can't even find the jersey listing on MLB's website it's not there 
just leave it up and let me order it and just say you're not going to get it for six months. I don't care. It'll be like an early Christmas gift to myself. Here's here's my take. Uh, I don't I don't know if this is a hot take or not. Um, jerseys just better than jerseys. Wow. Just, Hold just, it. <laughs> for the average fan, jerseys like are cool to wear around the house, maybe no. or to wear to I the, feel the game. Opposite. Only to the I, game. Wearing a jersey around your okay. house is kind of lame. I'll, right, I'll admit yeah, that. Whatever. But, but my point being, like, I'm not just going to be like, I'm going to go to the store. Let me throw on my Matt Chapman jersey real quick. You Can know? you even like, get a Matt Chapman jersey? I don't know. No, you can't. Are they just holding production for when he's on a different team? I'm just saying, jerseys cost a fifth of the price, and you don't look like a fucking dork when you walk outside with them. You know? There's just much you more do look utility like a dork. to them. No, you look like a dork. No, you, you, you just no. no. Come on, come on, come on. A jersey can be good style, especially if you wear it open, unbuttoned. You know. <laughs> Look, I'm not a, wearing a, a Fernando Tatis Jr. jersey to Target. Where are you I wearing just, it? That's a good question. Where, <laughs> I'm wearing it. Okay, number one, <laughs> it's for when I go to the Padres games. For when I drive. A couple hours to San Diego. <laughs> Maybe I might wear it to a game that I don't have an affiliation to either of the teams. So if oh, I go to any- that guy, yeah, sure. I'm just supporting MLB the whole sport, you know. <laughs> I just want to support the brand. I want to buy like the umpire's hat, you know, like yeah. the one that's just the logo. Like I'm just a fan of Major League Baseball. How much? How much money do you think umpires make? Phoebe asked me this question yesterday, and I had no idea. No ballpark, nothing. Do you think it's I like have. two over two hundred k? Uh, probably. Well, it's a pretty elite group of human beings. It is a pretty elite group of human beings. There I are mean, less umpires than players. There are less less made. It's it's easier to become a major league baseball player than a major league baseball umpire. We don't talk about that enough. Wow. Let me this buy is, Joe West's jersey. What number is he? Do you think I could buy Joe West's jersey right now? Like the, uh, you mean like the little like polo that they wear with like yeah. his number on the side? Uh huh. I don't know, but you should be able to. Alex, you can buy on eBay an authentic game worn umpire jersey, an umpire uniform. It's number 95. So it's not Joe West, who is number 22. A quick Google search has re- revealed. But Do they I can, tell you who the umpire is? They're just like care. someone for this. <laughs> it's Angel Hernandez. They don't want to say. <laughs> so I can more easily buy an umpire's jersey than a Fernando Tatis Jr. jersey. We we hate to see that. We we really we really don't like to see that. Or maybe we do. I don't what know. What is going on? What is going on? We've gotten we've strayed so far from the point. My stance remains the same. If anything, so does mine. Is if anything, I'm digging my heels in much further. Obviously, me too. We don't argue a lot on this podcast, but I'm willing to keep this one going for a while. You're crazy town for thinking that jerseys are better. They congratulations no, on not, looking like a fifth grader playing kickball. All right, we're not going to do the uh, 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 argument again. But I mean, you know, congratulations on sending your paycheck to a team that'll never love you. My entire um, paycheck. I make $129 <laughs> per week. Um, next up, 
we'll jump ahead to August. Uh, we were were lucky to have on Jessica Rain, who at the time um, was running for a U.S. Senate seat in Delaware. United States Senate. Not sure if you've heard of it, but it's that governing body that we have. There's only a hundred of them. They do things from time to time. They get together, and they and they talk and yell, and then then they go home, leaving us empty-handed. <laughs> However, Jess did not leave us empty-handed. In fact, she came ready with plenty of takes. Um, and she just came ready to, like, chat about baseball, which was surpri- and was surprisingly willing to do that for someone who was, again, in the middle of a Senate campaign. <laughs> uh, Jess is an absolute super fan and, realistically, a, a, a super guest. We we have loved having her on both the times that she came on. Yeah, we will. We, this is not the last you will hear of Jess Green on Tipping Pitches, I hope. No, not at all. Uh, so, without further ado, this is Swing States from August 27. Both as a um, progressive candidate but also as a as a baseball fan just kind of how you've engaged with that aspect of the sport this year because it feels like it's more laid out on the table than ever yeah and i think that sometimes that's like the the thing that i struggle with because mlb is a little exploitative right like in its in its developmental system and little is probably not a even accurate characterization like i think sometimes just talking to people about the conditions in which minor league players are playing is important because it's not the same as major league players, right? And we're talking about an organization that made almost $11 billion in revenue last year. And I recognize this year, that's probably not going to be the case, but these issues existed before this year. And I feel like I have the same exact conversation about most of the issues in our country, right? (laughs) Like all of this the even the development leagues that exist in Latin America, these minor league systems, like they are they are all structured in a way that see the players as expendable. And we're talking about players who, you know, the the Wilmington Blue Rocks are a high high A team. Like their average, they're making like I think six thousand dollars a season for five months of work. And you can't survive on that. Even in AAA, they're averaging what, like $15,000. Like these are poverty wages that we are paying people who we're also expecting to be in professional level sports shape. And we are, they basically have given up any other stability in their lives to try to play this game. Many of them knowing that like, they're not going to make it all the way through the developmental ladder, but because they want to play. They care about playing. They enjoy the game. And I, I don't, I get really, the, the problem I have is that they should still be compensated in a way that they can survive. And that is kind of the fight. And I think it's important to talk about the dollar amounts that people are actually making. And the and MLB will say it's because they don't want, I mean, they say kind of horrible things. Like they don't want to incentivize minor leaguers to stay in the lower, lower levels. So if we pay them shit, then they're going to want to move up. And it's like, that is just, I mean, completely absurd, right? Like that's not making them hungrier to move up. It's making them literally hungrier because they can't feed themselves, but it's not making them want to work harder to get to the show. You are creating instead this constant question in the back of their mind of like, is this actually what I should be doing? Because 
I can't support a family doing this. I can't support myself doing this. I mean, in Wilmington, we're one of the teams that uses host families because they know that the wages that players are making, they cannot actually afford housing on those wages. And it's sold as like, oh, a chance to create this great local bond with the family. And like, I'm sure those relationships exist. I'm sure that that's, that's cool to like build a relationship with the player and look out for them. But maybe we should actually be questioning why that's necessary at all. And that's where I think we really see this exploitation, this abuse of players. And instead of using that massive power and revenue that Major League Baseball has to find a way to better support these players and actually guarantee that they can survive, they're using it to to actually harm them further. Like they've lobbied Congress to exempt minor league players from labor laws. So they have made it so that players can only be paid for like 40 hours of week, a work week, even though we know they're spending like 60 to 70 hours committed to baseball. Like you don't get paid for bus rides. Like Wilmington could be playing in Myrtle Beach. That's like a nine hour bus ride. And that's not considered like time you're getting compensated for. You don't get paid for the spring training season. You don't get paid for any pregame meetings, postgame stuff. Like that's not considered time that you're giving the team, even though it absolutely is. So when you actually break it down with the hours that they're giving to the team, they're not even making close to minimum wage. And even with the raises that they're getting in 2021, they're not making close to minimum wage. And it, that is that is something that we just, I think it's incredibly important to call attention to that because it should not be ex- ex- acceptable for any single type of worker. Alex, three words. Actually, I'll add in a fourth word just for emphasis. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Unionize the goddamn miners. That's all I got to say. Big facts. Uh, okay. Thank you to Jess, of course. This next episode, it's truly revelatory. It was revelatory for me in the moment. It was revelatory for many of our listeners in, in a very, very bad way. We got a lot of negative feedback about this episode. So you know what we're doing? We're putting it in another episode. This one is about Joe West's, you know, the umpire, frequent... Heard of him. Haver of bad political opinions, frequent maker of poor calls on the field, the baseball diamond. Um, this was about his spoken word country album, which is just a sentence I'm going to say again, his spoken word country album. Uh, this is... From, <laughs> it doesn't need any more explanation. This is from Two Chords, The Truth, and Cowboy Joe on September... 21st. Alex, we have a lot of important stuff to talk about today, but nothing more important than what I'm about to ask you to start this podcast. This is stunning. I'm on the edge of my seat. Are you aware that Joe West is a country music artist with two recorded studio albums? Oh my God. No. Neither was I. I never knew this. Hold on, wait. Let me play this for you. Please, please. This is this is the same. That song is called Joe Blue West, Cowboy. Right? 
This is the same Joe West. That song is called Blue Cowboy, the title track off of his most recent album. I don't know. It's hard to tell because his website was created in like 2002 and never updated. Like it's not even a secure HTTPS website. <laughs> that's when you know. Yeah, that's that's when you know. So does he does he perform under the name Joe West? I think he performs under the name Cowboy Joe West. Cowboy Joe West. I I won't lie. Let's see if he's on Spotify. Let's see if he's I on was, Spotify. I was just I was just about to look this up. Yeah. I I don't think any of his music is on Spotify. Although, if you search his artist name, Cowboy Joe West, right, which is a whole separate thing. It brings up an album called Diamond Dreams, which appears to be a spoken word poem, a spoken word album by Joe West. Alex, would you like to uh would you like to read a couple song names from this from this spoken word album? Yeah, so you so this album's called Diamond Dreams. And uh <laughs> there's like not a single one that I don't want you to read. So just read all the names. <laughs> the 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 track list goes Diamond Dreams. A piece of history every day. Characters of the game. <laughs> a thank you to our military. That's where it gets good. Extra innings, which is 18 minutes long. <laughs> Out at home. And the men in blue, which can be taken oh multiple ways. Oh my god. It's so good. This Hold on, wait. Can we listen to a second of the men in blue? Absolutely. I made some calls that made a lot of people mad. I made some that made them cheer. I get a chance to be on the field with the greatest players of the game. Some of them say hello. Then some of them, they don't even want to know my name. But every day is different when it comes to the men in blue. Our success is measured by how we work as a crew. I owe a lot to baseball, and I love what I do. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I'm one of a chosen few. Every day is filled with excitement. Some days I get cheered. Some days I get booed. But I'm proud to be part of a family. A group they call the Men in Blue. Last week, listeners will remember. Last week, listeners will remember that Alex and I tried to explain what the hell Joe West was talking about when he threw Mike Rizzo out of the game. And then justified it by saying that he would throw anyone out of the game for that behavior, including President Donald Trump. And that is somehow like the now the 15th weirdest thing that Joe West that has come to our attention about Joe West in the last eight days. I can already tell from your face that I've put you down the deep dive of a life. You have. Like you have yeah, no, I'm I'm all in now. I'm ready to do 60 minutes on CowboyJoeWest.com. I'm a. I'm this is this is my QAnon right here. Do you want to know how I found this? Please. Literally on the ESPN Daily podcast. Longtime ESPN national baseball reporter Tim Kirkchin did a profile of Joe West. Cause like anytime you can just get do a little fluffy profile of a guy like this, <laughs> you gotta do it. And they did an episode of the ESPN Daily around it, which is a very common thing that they do. When someone writes a long profile, they bring that person on to talk about that figure on the ESPN Daily in the morning and they played a they played a couple clips of Cowboy Joe West's music and I was like first of all this is tipping pitch's core second of all this isn't that bad <laughs> this is tipping pitch's core 
third of all, didn't even know about the spoken word album. That was a live discovery on the podcast. So for listeners, just know that I edited a lot of Alex going, what the fuck? (laughs) Out. (laughs) Did you know that Joe West has appeared at the Grand Ole Opry and performed with people like Merle Haggard? I'm sure maybe this was brought up in the profile um, where they discussed this. Yes. Uh How is this not more known how like how have we existed on baseball twitter for 10 years and not known this you know some things are collectively memory hold and usually there's a pretty good reason for that sometimes that reason just happens to be that joe west has a spoken word album out about baseball that has a song title named a thank you to our military and you know what i'm i'm okay with that maybe this was something that we were never meant to um to have into our lives. Now that it's here, it's going to haunt me forever. I hope you know that. If you think about it, how different from a podcast is a spoken word album? Joe West is basically out here podcasting with us. <laughs> that is actually pretty true. Apparently this album came out in 2008 and he's been recording since like the 80s. Yeah, he's a man with many interests. Among those he interests are denying music coronavirus. As, <laughs> described his music as two chords and the truth. It's simple. It tells a story. That's kind of a bar. Thanks, Joe West. (laughs) Two chords and the truth. I mean, like, that's that cuts right down to it. Taylor Swift put Joe West on the third folklore trilogy album challenge. Cowboy Joe, like me, my friend. (laughs) Moving right along. You know we had to talk about the one and only Billy Bean and his uh, and his Irish exit from <laughs> baseball. And this That's was a conversation. Good. <laughs> good, good work by you. Thank you. Uh, this was a conversation that really ranged um, wide and far as we tried to kind of look at um, Billy Bean's impact on uh, sabermetrics in the game and kind of how it has shifted the the scope of things over the last couple decades and and really what things look like now um what that future is that we are hurtling towards yeah you want to talk about i mean you want to talk about main characters main characters of your baseball life alex you're it's it's true child preteen teen early adult mid adult mid 20s and probably late 20s baseball watching life the main character is potentially Billy Bean, which yeah, is when when bleak. Brad Pitt pays, plays you, you are a main character. You can exactly. be uh, sure of that. Exactly. Um, so let's get right to it. This is Moneyball Endgame uh, on October 19th. On one hand, Billy Bean's legacy is cool because like, he was the guy willing to try something different. And I think that like people like you and me who like grew up reading fan graphs and grew up reading baseball prospectus and grew up reading these places where it's like, hey, you shouldn't just accept the old way of thinking in baseball because there are better ways to do this. I think can appreciate that he was the one that was like, you know what, let's just let's say screw it. This guy is more efficient. Let's acquire him. I think it's a shame that it became so wrapped up in the core motivation being money. Like, let's acquire him because he will cost my owner less, not because he's an interesting 
player who is good for a different reason and let's continue to underpay him because the other clubs can't identify that he is good. And I think that we've kind of let Billy Bean run amok. And now he's like going to have all of his like wildest dreams cashed in and everybody is going to think that like if they do what Billy Bean did, they'll have all of their wildest dreams cashed in. I think it's just going to continue to I don't see an end for this. Do you? Like I don't see an end for the Billy Bean influenced front office person running a team. No. And I think that, you know, the Rays kind of following in those footsteps. We talked about this earlier on the podcast about the Rays making the World Series, right? But like this will only kind of feed that narrative, right? Of, well, if you kind of um if you nibble around the edges a little bit and go for those undervalued guys, that it can work. I, we we already talked last week about kind of the difference between the A's and the Rays a little bit. Um, and ultimately, I think Billy Bean's downfall, I downfall in air quotes because he did just fine for himself, right? But I think we learned that you, from Billy Bean's tenure with the A's, that you can't rely solely on the business aspect to create sustained success you know i mean they you know they billy bean for all his successes and the praise that's been heaped on him over the last 30 years never got a title right because ultimately you and either have really to spend a decent amount like, and never really came that close because you kind of have to spend a little bit of money or you have to be really, really good at scouting players or something like that. Like the business aspect is really own piece is really only one piece of the puzzle. So if anything, I think that we will see teams learning from that teams like the Rays, who, in addition to having that mindset of not wanting to spend a lot of money, finding those inefficiencies are also just really good at scouting pitchers who can throw 98 miles per hour, right? Like, and that works. If you're able to do that, well, then you have that leg up over the competition. I think the problem is you can't ever be good for longer than five years and probably only longer than three years before you have to kind of refresh, restart the cycle. Because if your whole MO is exploiting the baseball labor system, which we should say, that's the whole MO of Moneyball is that you have a cost controlled core of young players and you bring in fringe players that other teams care a little less about, but you've identified something that can contribute to your team. That's Moneyball. That's it. And that only exists because of arbitration rules that only exists because of player control. And if you blew that up, <laughs> there's no Billy Bean <laughs> and there's no raise. And so my problem, and this is my problem with the raise too, which I already mentioned is that, you never build sustained relationships with players if you're a fan. And at the end of the day, like, why are we even doing this? Why are we even playing sports? It's because, like, in theory, it's supposed to be, like, a public good. It's supposed to be a thing that the community cares about. It's supposed to be a thing that you can rally around in your city. It's supposed to be entertainment. But it's not that anymore. And I think Billy Bean is, like, the final... Obviously, baseball was trending towards being more about money than anything else. And that opened the door for Billy Bean. And I think Billy Bean is the final straw. Like, there is no way that you can look at his tenure with the A's and think anything other than he just pulled the curtain back on what this really is. 
And what it really is is like a way to make the most money possible. Entertainment value be damned. And that's not to say that like the Rays aren't entertaining or that they don't have entertaining players. The A's for this whole time have not been entertaining. The A's have had plenty of good players. The A's currently have plenty of good players, plenty of entertaining players. But it's not, they didn't maintain them. They didn't keep them around. I mean, how many times have we talked about this? The A's have traded away every single one of the players that you've ever loved. <laughs> every single one. And that sucks. That sucks. And it builds up this collective distrust in the in the front office of your favorite team. If your favorite team treats the game like this. Thank you, but but kind of not thank you to Billy Bean. Um, your impact in our life is complicated. Thank you for being our weirdly absent and semi-toxic baseball father. Uh, next up, oh, I want to say, just a bang-up job by you this year titling episodes. A lot of these episodes are just, they're very clever. Nice work. Thanks. Nobody would ever that. be able to find them by SEO, but guess what? We don't give a fuck about that. We're out here for the true <laughs> No one's listeners. looking for us that way anyway. We don't want the, we don't want the bots. Get out of here, bots. <laughs> we don't need you listening to our creme de la creme labor takes um speaking of creme de la creme just baseball in general takes our next episode (laughs) was with the wonderful wonderful Rhea butcher who is the host of three swings which is just my favorite baseball podcast ours included um Rhea is a wonderfully nice person and a wonderfully intelligent thinker about many things baseball being just one of them we had a conversation with them um right after the Dodgers won the fucking world series which is a thing that happened we just don't talk about it anymore. Remember that? Dodgers broke their World Series drought. That was fun. Mm-hmm. If um, you say so. <laughs> and uh, we talked to Rhea about, you know, what I mentioned earlier in the pod about how owners are attempting to completely corner the market of baseball as a concept. Hence the title of the episode, The Concept of Baseball. Let's get into it. November 3rd with Rhea Butcher. I mean, the Rob Manfred one baseball thing just really, I really don't like it. I don't like it at all. And I mean, I think for me, you, you know, social media and the IP and all of it. But for me, it's it's also, they, they don't want you to step on a baseball field without thinking of Major League Baseball, you know. And that's a reality, you know. That's a, that's a fantasy and like a reality and a cool thing in America, you know. Like it's, a, it's part of the, the dream and the pastime and all this stuff, but. They want their claws and their trademark in all of it. And it's why they keep people out. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it keeps people out of the sport. You know, it, it, I, I personally like to watch all different levels. Like I'm so grateful that the KBO was being played and like people, you know, the people who were enjoying it, it was just nice to watch people enjoy something because it is the sport that they love and it doesn't have to look this way or that way. And it's like, what if we just enjoyed things? What if we didn't have to compare them all the time? What uh, if the NBA, if the WNBA could all just exist and you could find the things you liked about both of them? You know, like instead of constantly comparing them, what if, uh, you know, we didn't keep women out of baseball and shoved them into softball and then said softball was stupid? Like, what if uh, everybody played all of it? <laughs> what if we just watched different kinds of baseball? Like, what if we got more baseball? You know, that's the thing. To me, it's just more baseball. And that's all I want, you know, yeah. it's like more baseball all the time. But what I'm, what I'm missing in that is how do you make money? Off right. Of you don't that? make money off of that, but you also do like, it's just, it's an inability. 
Because it's just not true. You know, it's just not true. Like, A League of Their Own is a movie, a fictionalized movie about a real thing, a real league that lasted 10 years. I have one complaint about that movie, and it's the fact that none of the stuff at the end, you know, the words at the end, the text at the end says the league lasted for 10 years. Yeah. World War II did not last for 10 years. Yeah. Major League Baseball was p- happening at the same time. And the reason that it failed was not because people didn't care. It was because of mismanagement by executives. And then also the advent of televised games. And they couldn't yeah. keep up with television, you know. So I just don't buy that as like, you know, it would take some time. But you you can make money off of anything. It's just how much money do you want to make? Do, do you want to do it like uh, Bing Russell? Do you want to make enough money to make a thing that is worth making? Or do you want to make as much money as possible and then leave? You know, yeah. like, unfortunately, well, a lot of people go with the second one. Exactly. And I was going to say, it's an interesting, like, ecosystem question because it doesn't, mm-hmm. that version of this, creating as much baseball as possible and making it as accessible as possible doesn't fit these 30 all white old men billionaire <laughs> right. worldview yeah. of supply and demand where they yeah. like corner the supply and yep. they create their own demand and fix yep. it as if it's like the stock market you know like it just yeah. doesn't fit their worldview of how things become accessible to communities and how you like build, build power in an idea and in this case the idea is baseball yeah and then they try to sell it back to you by saying oh look at all this money we donate and stuff like that Oh you my know. god! Well, <laughs> they don't make any. Like, well, actually, why are we even having this conversation? Because baseball owners don't make any money from baseball. Oh right, they they had to fire everyone. Yeah, <laughs> they don't exactly. make any money. Right, baseball's not profitable. I just think you know, like here's the thing: in a in a perfect world, you know, Congress, the Senate would be challenging the you know the exemption from the monopoly rule and creating some change in the corporate stru- structure of baseball. Because I, personally, I don't think you can have both. You don't get to keep operating like this as a monopoly <laughs> and then get this like, you know, it, cause it's just not, it doesn't, it's very American what they're doing. But, um, also it's not just that these guys, that these are old white guys. It's like, these are oil executives. These yeah. are military, like military weapons executives. Like that is the Real money that's in baseball. Yeah. Th- these are lords. like, yeah, they're like, yeah. Yeah. These are, these are the, I mean, there's a Halliburton sign in left field at, you know, Minute Maid Field or whatever. It's like, this is old, old money and this is the way that money works. You know, it just extracts until it's gone. They are causing this. They're causing this by tightening the grasp on who can play baseball by thinning it down to like, oh, you have to have like $1,000 to get into Little League because you're basically getting scouted by the time you're 11. You know, It's, it's, it's bonkers to me. Alex, you were throwing a sick changeup at 11, though. Like, good thing you were getting scouted so early. That changeup was fucking, it was dropping right out of the zone at the last second. fell off the table. (laughs) That was actually, that was my fastball that I was throwing. Just, it wasn't hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) Great chat, as always. Rhea, wonderful human. Um, This final segment that we're going to highlight actually dovetails quite nicely with that conversation about the concept of baseball and whether it's something that you can quantify or something that you can put a price tag on. Um, 
it's something that some people have been known to try to do in the past. <laughs> um, this one is uh, pretty recent. You could say as recent as last week. Uh, we talked to the one and only Clinton Yates about the, the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball's attempt to, for lack of a better word, colonize their history and whitewash it and bring it under their own umbrella, claim it as their own. Um, there was really no other person we could talk to about this sort of thing. And it resulted in just a really a, a stunningly wide ranging and eye opening conversation that I felt really glad that we were able to able to have. So uh, bringing it home here, this is from December 22nd. And it is the Negro Leagues have always been valid. Can you read that first sentence again for me? Because I'm trying to think of the one part that messed me up, but I just don't have it at hand. The perceived deficiencies of the Negro League structure and scheduling were born that of MLB's right exclusionary practices. That exactly. right there. The perceived deficiencies of the scheduling and whatever. And you're like, well, hold on. Perceived by whom? And like, that was never really... I, I just... It's such an indication of coming from the standpoint of like power and privilege that it's it's blind to the notion that that assertion off rip is just wrong. You know what I'm saying? That It's the concept of perceived deficiencies that I think that historians don't understand. They don't always make the rules on just because they might control or discuss or determine what makes the proverbial books. Um, most people who have more than just the bigs in their daily baseball diet or their yearly baseball diet understand that the concept of deficiencies is just not a thing. I mean, there are different levels of league play, but to insinuate that it's lesser than is the issue. You know what I mean? There's no, okay, well, here was the perceived problem. Here's how we're fixing. It's like, no, 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 no. Why were you perceiving it that way to begin with? And let's start with that discussion as opposed to what he gets around to and the end, which is saying that it's extremely satisfying. You know, yeah, for, profoundly for, gratifying. Profoundly yeah. gratifying. Excuse me. That's even worse than I was having in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Like gratifying to whom? And profound how? Like that, that, does, that didn't even make sense to me. And I was just, I remember when I first read that, I was like, yo, are they not joking? But I was like, how are they even, how do you even say something like that when you're in a position of righting a wrong? To say it's, gratifying to yourself is just that. And that's where the last line of the thing came from. I'm like, yo, this is not a, you're welcome situation. This is an, I'm sorry situation. And yeah. that thorn quote just didn't, I, it was just a clear indication of the misunderstanding. And I felt, I felt kind of bad too, because it was obvious that they thought that this was going to be received in a way that was purely all positive. But all the verbiage that came out around it was an indication of what was actually wrong. That was actually not what was actually going to be better. And I, and I want to say, like the fact that it, that sentence, the one that you highlighted, the first the first sentence of his quote, born of MLB's exclusionary practices, like the the meta textual subtextual idea of that coming from John Thorne, the baseball historian, like almost distancing the current MLB from that and right it coming from was born from the exclusionary practices well like that that was your chance to reckon with it and i feel like they just missed it 
The amount yeah, of pass, well, passive language in this right, statement that's, is that's wild. That's the main thing. Born of like, yo, what? Like, first of all, it was America's problem. And MLB made it worse. I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't necessarily know. I mean, listen, white folks went to Negro League games. Reminder. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not as if people weren't allowed to watch these games. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a massive misunderstanding about how all of this kind of occurs and processes in general. And it's almost like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say this about Thorne personally, but it's one of those things where sometimes you hear things from people that are of a certain age and from a certain place. And you just ask yourself like legit, yo, like, do you know any black people? You know what I'm saying? Because your whole situation in terms of how you're presenting yourself is an indication that maybe you, you do literally just don't understand what was happening in people's lives at that time. And that's not a, a, a knock on Thorne specifically, but Again, that language, you're right, born of exclusionary practices. Like, what? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, do you talk to regular humans like this? This doesn't even this doesn't even make sense. And I'm not trying to be flip. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. that like when I read that, I was I was genuinely taken aback um by how not even off base, but just misguided. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that in a wayward way. Um, a lot of a lot of this, a lot of this language was. Yeah. They they use the words um, error, uh, oversight, um, backdrop of injustice is what Rob Manfred said, which is my personal favorite because I'm backdrop just like, of what is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what is that? Like, sounds like a superhero thing. Hi, yeah. I'm Batman here to defend the world against a backdrop of injustice. <laughs> What's that? I mean, I don't know. It's just it's just kind of like I get it. There's a lot of corporate language that goes into a lot of things simply because. It's easier, I think, in the context of if you're not really going to do that much work. You yeah, know, but like, what what if for once there wasn't? You know, like, what if for once they actually came out and chose a topic that they need to choose and cut the corporate bullshit out of it and actually spoke honestly about yeah, what they I mean, did? That's if what they I mean. Spoke you know? Honestly, you might not want to hear what they actually have to say, though. I mean, and that's another thing to consider. I I mean, yeah, the, I think that's the, the point. Part. Is though, is just that it's not just about speaking honestly. It's about if you speak honestly, you get to a point where you can probably do more honest things. And in this case, you know, leveling statistics is, is, I guess, great, but that only serves the kind of people who care about that. Like, I don't care about Jimmy Fox versus Cool Papa Bell. I, I don't. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a thing to me. And I'm as big a baseball fan as there is on the globe. You know what I mean? Like, so equating, I, like, that was the other part about this. It was kind of also like, Sorry, guys, this is actually not that cool in a practical baseball sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I have no usage day to day for me. And that's just me speaking personally of like how stats added up versus one another. I mean, the points are that the culture of the game being not lifted and celebrated on the same level as things like, I don't know, Mark McGuire hitting Big Mac signs in St. Louis. You know what I mean? Like, if you can't sort of, act as if the history of baseball, not major league baseball, but just baseball is important to the product of major league baseball. That's the issue. It's that this one baseball concept is just too, it's too uh, colonialist for lack of a better term. Like why does everything have to be under the MLB umbrella on some some regard in order for y'all to acknowledge it? Like that's just weird. And that's the actual problem. 
You know what I mean? This isn't just about the Negro Leagues. It's about every league across the globe being on some other list if it's not directly affiliated with Major League Baseball. That's the concern here, you know, is that they don't seem to understand that people like the game for more reasons than just their own league. And that's really what the big bummer is. Okay, Alex, we did it. And if you're still listening to this podcast, you did it. Um, (laughs) Thank you for listening to our year in review in 2020. Uh, No need to waste any more time here. This has obviously been a very long episode, but we hope that you got a little bit out of it. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for tuning into this. Um, This is a pretty good idea of the kind of thing that we do on this show, which is sort of hard to explain in, uh, in, in short form, but we hope that this longer form look back on our year in 2020 did just that. Um, Thank you to everyone for listening throughout this entire year. It's really meant a lot to us um, to get to do this pod in such a weird year. And Alex, I will turn to you and say, it's really meant a lot to do this pod with you and to have a reason to jump on here every week. It's been, of course, an incredibly isolating year, but doing this pod is a, is a profound sense of normalcy and a tie back to the normal world. So thank you. Oh, Wow. Am I in my feels over here? Is that what this is? <laughs> that was so touching. Um, yes, absolutely. Cosign all of that. This has been a, a profoundly strange year. And to, to have something that we can all rally around um, has been really wonderful. And to all of the listeners who have just like stuck with us through all of this, thank you immensely. Uh, the, the tipping pitches Dan Army is strong and it grows stronger every single day. And y'all are the reason we do what we do. So. Just our favorite people. Our absolute faves. Um, it's a good thing that the thing that we chose to rally around kind of kind of sucks. Um, and that's the wide world of baseball. But it's fine. We're doing our best. Yeah. We don't we don't we true. don't always choose who we love. <laughs> <laughs> Chooses us. Um we have a really great January planned for all of you. So I hope that you're sticking around and I hope that if you're hearing this this late in the podcast, um, you would consider suggesting to a couple people that you think might like this show to check out this episode, but also subscribe and check out the stuff that we're going to be doing in January. Because I think this offseason is a really good opportunity for us to talk to even more people around the, the game and do more episodes like Could Fans Own a Team, do more episodes like um, wonderful conversations with very smart people in the baseball world um, or in the peripheries of the baseball world. So I'm looking forward to 2021, even if it might be a gigantic mess of a labor battle between the owners and the players union. I think that uh, you and I will have fun despite that fact. I agree. Thank you to you, Bobby. Thank you to our listeners. Happy new year. Um, Everybody stay safe. uh, And we will talk to you next week. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. So we'll see you next week. See ya! See ya! See ya! See ya!